0: We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're looking at Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who wrote around uh, 600 BC. And he was living in a time where there was this um, massive external threat, uh, the uh, empire of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, terrifying empire, that was a threat to the whole known world. And Israel, the people of Israel, Isaiah's people, were buckling under the weight of this uh, threat. And in many ways, uh, we, li- we live in a similar situation. Of course, it's not a, it's not a political enemy, it's, a, it's a, a viral enemy. It's a an enemy that uh, is putting a lot of pressure on a lot of countries including our own country uh, which is why we're out here and uh, and we have a lot of fears as did Isaiah and his people and um, including the fear of death I mean that's that's really what's driving all of the fears is the fear of dying that this thing could kill us and so Israel was terrified of dying the Assyrians were going to come down and wipe them out and they were right on the The very cusp of of Jerusalem, about to destroy them. And and God gives Isaiah a vision in this time uh, that is a vision of this person that he calls the servant, who he says, he's going to be a king, but he's not going to be like any king you've ever seen. He's going to be this universal king that rules the whole world, but he's also going to be a prophet. He's going to be a truth teller. He's going to be a poet. And he's also going to be a priest who will lay down his life for the, for the world. That he will be the mediator between God and humanity that sheds his own blood um, for the forgiveness of the sins of all people. And in this passage today, we finally see him, who Isaiah had been prophesying about, and now here he is, the prophet, priest, and king, and he's resurrected, and he's talking to two of his disciples, two Israelites, when all of their hopes are dashed. Or so they think. They think that he's gone for good. And he tells them about how the entire scriptures, and I think especially Isaiah, I think that's the one he would really hone in on. That Jesus, incognito, tells these two disciples who are full of fear, full of doubt, full of despair. They're not hoping, uh, they've lost all their hope. And he tells them that the entire Old Testament was always pointing to him, and they're talking to him right there. So I want to look at... The way that uh, the prophet, priest, and king himself comforts these hopeless disciples that are filled with fear and they are bent on hopelessness. That's the way our default is always towards hopelessness. We always are drifting towards despair and towards fear. And I want to look at the way he comforts them in that hopelessness by giving them a deeper hope. In fact, a hope that is deeper than death, uh, something that, that is more powerful than all of our fears. So, um, first of all, the, the, the way that we are bent on hopelessness. Verse 13, it says that two of them, two of the disciples, this is after the crucifixion of Christ when they think that everything is over. They think the entire Jesus movement is over. And these two disciples, uh, verse 13, were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they are returning... Uh, Home. Cleopas is one of the two names. We don't know the other one's name. Could be the wife of Cleopas. But they are walking back home to their old life. These two disciples, and they're trying to process their broken hopes, their all the fears that they have. Um, In the same way that we're trying to process as we did at brunch today. You know what's going on right now. What is going on with Omicron? And it is pronounced Omicron, by the way. Uh, I study Greek. 15th letter of the Greek alphabet is Omicron, not Omicron. And so they are, um, you know, they are afraid in the same way we are about what's going on right now. They're, they're processing what's been going on. And then this stranger approaches. And I love how uh, the prophet, priest, and king comes to them incognito. And I love that he asks him. And if you ever thought the Bible's not funny, this is a funny passage. Uh, he asks him, what is this conversation that you're having right now? And, um, of course, he knows He knows exactly what they're talking about. He can tell their countenance. Uh, He knows that they're sad. And he wants to draw them out. He wants to draw out their fears and their hopelessness. And and he does so. It says in 17, they stood still looking sad. And then this fantastic irony where um, they ask him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here? And of course, he's the only one that does know the things that have happened because he has actually gone through everything and he is now resurrected and he's standing right there right next to them but he plays dumb uh, he plays dumb and he, he says uh, oh what, what are you talking about you know what things verse 19 tell me more I have no idea what you're talking about and then they tell him well our chief priests and our rulers delivered the one we had hoped you know the Messiah he, they delivered him up to be condemned to death this is verse 20 and they crucified him but we had hoped he was the one we had hoped that he was the one that he was going to be the prophet, priest, and king that's prophesied about in Isaiah, and that he was going to deliver Israel. And that is a great question uh, to ask yourself right now at Christmas, is what had you hoped for? You know, what were you hoping in? What are your dashed hopes? Um, What had you hoped for in life that has not happened? I was talking to someone this week who said that their family life has not gone as they had hoped, and that at Christmas it's especially hard. Because this is not what they were hoping for. And it's a good, it's a good question to you and ask yourself, what, it, what has uh, happened in your life that is not as you had hoped? Maybe with a job, um, it could be with sports. A lot of times people are very disappointed with the way things worked out with their, um, their sports career uh, or their physical health, their ability to exercise. Could be uh, a job, it did, it did not work out as you had hoped, a ministry of some sort, a relationship, and we tend to think that um, God is not with me anymore. You know, winding up in this place, you know, in a, in a retirement center that I did not expect to be in. You, you might end up in a, in a nursing home you're not expected to be in, in a place you had not expected to be. And you think, this is not, my, my life has veered away from what I had hoped and what I thought God's plan for me was. And Jesus gets very direct with these Two disciples. He doesn't ask questions all the way through. In verse 25, he's not asking a question, he's making a statement. And I think he said this with enormous gentleness and kindness. But he says, Oh, foolish ones, verse 25, and slow of heart to believe. Oh, foolish ones, why are you walking home, looking sad, giving up, right when the resurrected one is standing right next to you? And I love the expression, slow of heart. Slow of heart to believe. It's obviously a metaphor. And I think about um, a mind, you know, the heart is a description of, of more like what's going on in our mind. So it's, uh, it's these thoughts that we have that are very sluggish and glitchy. I thought like about a really old iPhone, like an iPhone 3, and you're trying to process a video or something like that, and that circle's just spinning. That's a slow, a slowness of heart to believe. With, with good news, we are like that. Uh, We were like a Commodore 64. I had a Commodore 64, one of the earliest computers, really slow processor. Whenever there's good news, we're really slow at processing things. Now with bad news, we're like a high-speed, you know, Intel core processor. We go right for that stuff. Uh, We have a very easy time processing. Uh, We're fast of heart with bad news. But with good news, we're slow of heart. And Jesus says it's foolishness. It's foolishness. We think of fools as people who are naive and gullible and they believe things too quickly. And that's what we call a fool. And Jesus says, no, a fool is when you're slow to believe something that's really good. Some really good news. And you're afraid of getting played or you're afraid of getting your hopes up and looking foolish. Like Abraham when he doubted that Sarah was pregnant, even though God told Abraham that that would happen. Or when Israel was doubting that God could feed them after he just liberated them out of Egypt. That's foolishness and slowness of heart to believe. So a fool is someone who does not question their doubts. When their doubts arise and they lose hope and they start to despair and they think everything's going wrong. A fool is someone who does not question their doubts. And in fact they think their doubts are mature and courageous and prudent. And that's what these two disciples think. In verse 22, they say, yeah, these women, uh, the, some women completely amazed us. And they're talking about the women that did not abandon Jesus. Because these are the only people that did not abandon Jesus. And they're being skeptical of these women as if these women were fools. They said, yeah, in verse 22, they came back from the tomb and they were saying they'd seen these vision of angels. They said that he was alive. But you know how women are with angels, just always going on about angel this and angel that. They think that they're so hard-nosed. They're such realists. And they said, you know, we double-checked it. We went there with our clipboards, and we made sure it was not true. And sure enough, some of us went to the tomb and didn't see anything, verse 24. And sometimes our doubts are the things that are very foolish, as in the case of these two, and gullible. And we give up hope way too quickly. And even the hopes that we have are often way too small. Their hope was that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, verse 21. And he's sitting there thinking, you know, Israel is nothing to me. I, I came to restore the whole world. I came to conquer death. I came to turn your greatest nightmare into your greatest hope. That which had most terrified you your whole life, the fear of death, I've come to turn that into the gateway into eternal life. And so that's now the second point that he is showing them. I have a hope for you that is deeper than your deepest fear. Because I believe the fear of death is our deepest fear. And that all other fears are driven by the fear of death. And Jesus is saying, I have come and I have conquered the grave. Look at verse 20. Uh, They say to him, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now that was the most traumatic event of their life. Um, Can you imagine the person that you had placed all your hopes in, this Messiah? And that watching that Messiah, utterly humiliated, betrayed, um, and then crucified and pulverized by Rome. By the very empire you thought he was going to overthrow. And you're looking at him up on that hill, crucified, and you just think, everything is lost. And not only that, but the people who put him up there, not only were the Romans... But the people who put them up there were your religious leaders that you had trusted your whole life. I mean, so it's this combination of deep, deep betrayal from your religious leaders and one of your members, Judas. So you have this deep personal betrayal and you have this massive political crisis that... Just suddenly swept over you that you thought Rome was going to be overturned and now Rome has crushed your Messiah. And so they are experienced this intense despair and hopelessness and sadness. And Jesus breaks right in and he says, this is not something that is foreign to my kingdom. My kingdom includes things like this. Verse 25, this is what all the prophets have been speaking about. And he's been telling them throughout the ministry, expect this to happen. Expect me to be defeated. Expect me to be crucified. Expect Rome to humiliate me. And then I will enter into my glory. Look at verse 26. First, the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king. First, Messiah has got to be crucified and suffer. And only then... Can there be glory? And in the kingdom of God, the true glory of the kingdom only comes through suffering. In fact, our greatest glory comes through massive discomfort, um, trauma, great tragedy. That's the way of the kingdom. It's not a sidebar issue in the kingdom of God. In verse 27, Jesus begins with the Moses, and then he goes through all the prophets, and he interpreted them in all the scriptures that they were all about himself. And not just about himself, but about his suffering and his glory. So, when you read the Old Testament, you're not reading it to study about uh, the way you should live, primarily, or these stories of heroes, primarily, but it's all about Jesus. And it's about his crucifixion, his suffering, and then his glory. There's a book called the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible that a lot of you kids love, and I love it. And the subtitle says every story whispers his name and that's because every single story in the bible whispers the name of jesus the prophet the priest and the king and the every story whispers he's going to bring new life out of utter despair he's going to bring eternal life out of death and so suffering in the kingdom of god does not negate our hope it actually just it makes it glow it fires it up suffering actually makes our hope grow stronger in the kingdom of god Because the very worst thing that could happen, death, has been turned into life. So it's like our hope is dipped in suffering. You know, and I think of dipping, like a Dairy Queen, you take one of those cones and you dip it into, imagine it's really dark chocolate, kind of really bitter. Uh, The kind of chocolate you would get at Whole Foods is really expensive and it's very bitter. It doesn't even taste like it's sweet. And imagine dipping, you know, a cone into that and then tasting that, it's a combination of bitterness. And sweetness, that all Christian hope is dipped in suffering. It's, uh, it's what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a strange glory, a strange kind of glory. It's the glory that he experienced in prison. There's a book about uh, Bonhoeffer by Charles Marsh that uh, I really love. There's, there's several biographies of Bonhoeffer. This one is my favorite uh, by Charles Marsh, and it's called Strange Glory, quoting Bonhoeffer. And according to uh, Charles Marsh, of course, we know Bonhoeffer was dying in a Nazi prison camp, if you know anything about him. Well, what you don't hear a lot about him was that he was terrified of dying and he was, he was occasionally very angry. And one quote was he said, I want my life. I demand my life back. I demand my past back. And he was just lamenting for, for he was engaged and he was losing his family. He had, he's lost his status as a pastor of a ministry leader. And yet, in one of his last letters, he says it was all a part of this strange glory. And in one of the, uh, the reviews I read of the, uh, of the book by uh, a poet named Christian Wyman, this is what he says. He says, Bonhoeffer's faith acknowledges the intractable fact of human suffering. And from that suffering rings out a strain of real joy and hope. So imagine a wet towel, and you're wringing out a wet towel, and out of that comes the true joy and the true hope of a Christian. And the suffering and the trauma of being wrung out is where the real glory comes from, and the real hope comes from. And there's nothing like the kind of hope that we have where the darkness cannot overcome that hope. The darkness only makes the hope stronger like these candles right here in the night and you know this coming week could be really hard for um, some of you Um, a lot of people again with dashed hopes whose lives had not gone as they had hoped or uh, maybe the dinner conversation you're going to have is going to be very painful Um, it might be really unappetizing because the people you're going to be with you can just expect there's going to be either a lot of silence it's incredibly awkward or blow up fights, or maybe you're going to have uh, warmed up leftovers by yourself. And um, either way, you know, we, we have got to resist the culture's lies about Christmas because it is not about uh, a family gathered around uh, a fire with chestnuts roasting or opening gifts even. It's not about a big turkey dinner. It is about this, uh, this child who came, this baby, and he came wrapped in suffering To bring the strangest kind of glory and hope into the world. Where that child, that manger pointed right to the cross. And just as he came in suffering and lowliness and the humility of being born in essentially what is it, dog's bowl. If you think about your dog and a bowl that they eat out of, that's what a manger was. It's what the animals ate from. It was disgusting. And so he was born in this manger, which pointed right to the cross and all of his glory came through suffering. And all of our glory as Christians comes through suffering. And my favorite thing about this passage, I didn't I include it in the scripture reading, but at the very end of the passage, when they finally recognize him, do you know when they finally recognize him? They don't, they don't know it's him the entire time they're walking all the way to Emmaus. They finally get there, and then it says he served them the Lord's Supper. And right when he served them the Lord's Supper, they opened their eyes, and they recognized who he was. And so... Um, This is more than any other place where we understand um, the mystery of the kingdom. Uh, The the mystery of who Christ is. That on the night he was betrayed... Love these rascals.